may be seated. Good morning. Well, we're back into uh, Esther after a couple of weeks' break celebrating Easter. Uh, even though technically this is the period of the church called Easter side, uh, which leads up until the ascension of Jesus, uh, we're going to continue to pick up where we were in the book of Esther uh, because I've got a lot of stuff planned and I need more weeks in the year, apparently. Um, to catch you up where we've been in the last few weeks of Esther, what we've looked at is that Jesus is a greater wing, a greater king. Jesus has a greater way. Jesus is a greater bride. Jesus died a greater death. And then two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus is a greater mediator. Uh, what we ended with uh, a couple of weeks ago was the conversation between Mordecai and Esther. Uh, Mordecai has heard this uh, announcement, this uh, proclamation that has gone out throughout the lands. Uh, every Jew is going to die. Uh, doesn't matter what their age is. Doesn't matter where they live. Doesn't matter much, how much money they make. Uh, everyone is up on the chopping block. And Mordecai is devastated. He rips his clothes. He puts on sackcloths and ashes. Uh, and he goes to Esther, who hadn't heard the news. There was a little bit of back and forth. You might remember the poor eunuch had to go back and forth and back and forth telling stories. And eventually, uh, Mordecai says to Esther, uh, if if you do nothing, if you completely ignore the situation, then help is going to come from another place. Uh, but I believe that you're in this place with this power, with this authority for such a time as this. And then Esther uh, finally found her courage, which she'd been lacking for uh, the previous portions of Scripture. And she ended with this sort of really, uh, this movie line, uh, which I think would be great just before the person goes in and tries to free the world. She ends with, if I perish, I perish perish. And that's where we are this week. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Esther, chapter 5. Uh, we're going to be uh, in verses 1 through 14 this morning. Esther, chapter 5, starting in verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And so you have to remember that this was a massive palace. Uh, king Xerxes actually had four palaces. He had them all around his kingdom. They're currently in Susa, which is his citadel. Uh, he's got a throne room in there. Uh, accounts of this throne room is that it had a vaulted ceiling some 40 to 50 feet high. Uh, amazing architecturally for the day. Uh, the throne room is expansive. It's got uh, all of the golden jewels you can possibly think of. His palace is described as having... Uh, Floors that are inlaid with uh, jewels, precious stones, and other expensive items. His couches are made out of gold and silver. And in the middle of his throne room uh, is his throne. His throne is massive, made of pure gold, again inlaid with jewels. And it was built, the room was built architecturally, so it didn't matter where you stood in the room, you could always see the throne. The throne was the most important thing to Xerxes, and he was the most important person for sitting on it. And so uh, on the third day, when Esther put on her royal robe, she gets herself pretty, and she is standing in the inner court in front of the king's quarters. She's not yet in the throne room. 
Uh, you had to get called to the throne room. If you walked in, what did Xerxes like to do to people? Kill them. We've discussed this for the last five sermons in Esther. Uh, Xerxes had a nasty habit of killing anyone that he wanted to or anyone that disagreed with him. If you entered his throne room uh, and he didn't hold up the royal scepter to you, uh, then you were just dragged off and killed. Verse 2, And then the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court. She won favor in his sight and held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even half of my kingdom, which is about the most generous that we will ever see Xerxes get. He's going to repeat, repeat this a couple more times throughout the rest of the book, but this is about as generous as Xerxes is going to get. And what you need to know is it wasn't a real... It wasn't a real offer. Xerxes isn't going to give up half of his kingdom because Xerxes thinks that he is a god. Xerxes is filled with big words, but not with much follow-through. If you see what happens in this book from the beginning all the way through the end, you'll see that Xerxes is a man of big words who likes to promise the moon, but doesn't actually do anything about it. Have you met these people? They walk a big walk. They talk a big talk. But when the rubber meets the road, uh, they've got nothing. Christians can't be like this. Scripture tells us that our words carry weight and meaning and that what we do is represent Christ to the world that is outside. And so if you have words that uh, you use that do not carry weight to them, you know that you're lying, you know you're not going to follow through, you know you're going to let people down, don't say the words. Uh, this, is, this is really quite simple. Uh, Jesus said, let your yeses be yeses, let your noes be noes. And it doesn't mean you have to say yes to everything. If someone comes up to you and says, I need you to do this, you don't have to do it just because. Right? So I'm not saying that you have to magically be able to find the strength, the time, the resources to fix every problem in the world, but you need to let your yeses be yes and your noes be no. And if you say you're going to commit to something, you need to follow through and do it because you're not just representing yourself anymore, you're representing Christ. Amen? Amen. Xerxes never follows through on anything that he does. Uh, he is incredibly selfish. He is self-centered and he uh, wants himself to be uh, puffed up and held in a high position above everyone else. Verse 4, and Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Uh, if you want to know how to get Haman on your good side, throw him, a, throw him a feast. We'll get to that in a second. But look, I, I got a couple of things here. Uh, about Esther, up until this point, Esther has been duplicitous. I know it doesn't, it's not, it's a strong word. I'm getting there, don't worry. We'll, we'll get to her redemption in this chapter. But up until this point, what you need to know about Esther is that she has two names, quite literally. She has a uh, Hebrew name that she doesn't go by. We're introduced to that a couple of chapters ago. And she goes by her Persian name, Esther. She has two personalities. She has two loyalties. She's loyal to the Jews as far as her own safety is concerned. But then as soon as that safety is called into question, then she goes over to the Persians. So she has this duality of nature. She is duplicitous uh, up until this point, up until chapter 5, 
Uh, at the end of chapter 4, she really, her character changes and she does the whole, let, I, let if I perish, then I perish. Let's get this show on the road. Let's just get it done. Uh, she goes into the king's court. She touches the scepter. She says, I want to throw a party for you. So it's at this point where she finds her courage. Uh, she has a dual identity. That's why I think that she has two names in this book. I really do. I think it's a, a literary technique that is given so that uh, we can see that she has two identities. She has a conflicted identity. And what I have to ask you is a, is a difficult question, I know, for some. But how many of you like that? You have dual identities. Sometimes you're a Christian. Sometimes you're not to the public. Sometimes you're holy. Sometimes you're not. Sometimes you're living for God. Sometimes you're not. Sometimes you're being generous. Sometimes you're not. Sometimes you're living for the glory of God and sometimes you're not. Do you have a conflicted identity? Now, this sounds really harsh. I know. You know me. I'm not a judgmental type of person. I'm not a yelling type of person. But here's where we fall down as Christians. When our words and our actions don't match up with our behaviors, people don't call your nature into character, into question, they call God's nature into question, okay? Um, if you were to back up in world history, if you're going to go to, to almost the beginning of the Bible to the book of Exodus, uh, after you fast forward through the Charlton Heston bit, uh, you've got him going up, Moses going up to the mountain, uh, he's getting the, the Ten Commandments from God. Uh, I saw a joke, it's the first ta- time that uh, someone downloaded data from the cloud and stored it on his tablet. Okay, some of you last, the rest of you, you're no longer on my Christmas card list. Heidi. You didn't laugh at my joke, it was fabulous. I'm moving on. But right before God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, right before the first, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. Right before that line, in the previous chapter, which is a continuation of the story, God says to Moses, to the Israelites, uh, I want you to be my special people. I want you to be my people. I want you to be my guys. I want you to represent me. I want you to go out into the world. I want you to tell people about me. I want you to, to show people how to live. I want you to show people how to worship me properly. I want you to be my guys. He says that to Moses about the Israelites. Then, you know, a couple of thousand years of history happens and some things go off the rails. And you get to the book of, uh, of Peter in the New Testament, which was a, a letter written by the Apostle Peter. And Peter quotes that to Christians and says to Christians, God wants you to be his guys. He wants you to be his people. He wants you to be his representatives. He wants you to go out into the world and show people what he's like, what his nature is like, what his character is like. He wants you to be his guys. And the most damage that you can do to Christianity is when you claim to be a, uh, one of God's guys, when you claim to be one of his followers, but then you don't act like it. When you say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm going to not love these people. I'm a Christian, but I'm not going to help these people. I'm a Christian, but I'm going to hoard my resources and be greedy and not going to share. Uh, I'm a Christian, but I'm not going to fellowship properly with people. I'm not going to pray for people. Uh, I'm instead going to sit at the back of the church and gossip about people. When you claim to be a Christian, you are claiming to be a representative of God and you don't do damage to your own character and reputation. You do damage to God's. If you were to take a survey of non-Christians throughout this country, particularly uh, Europe in general, 
and he would ask people who are not Christians to describe Christian, Christians, not Christianity, but Christians in one word. The word that comes back is hypocritical. That is the word that is used most of all to describe Christians by non-Christians. And it's because people see us saying one thing but doing another. Esther has been in that conflicted identity stage. She has been in that uh, duality of character and nature stage. She has followed God as far as it's not going to do her physical harm or cause her discomfort. She had to follow the dietary laws. She doesn't. She had to follow the purity laws. She doesn't. She has to follow uh, the Torah. She doesn't. She has to pray a certain amount of times a day. She doesn't. All of the things that she's supposed to do, she doesn't when it becomes inconvenient for her. But she, uh, So up to this point, she's living these two lives. But things are coming together for Esther. Things come together for us as well when we finally realize that we need to let go of who we are and who we want to be and let God shape us and mold us into who he wants us to be, which is his representatives to the world. Amen? Okay, we're moving on. Verse 5. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we might do as Esther had asked. Something you'll notice about the king is he never misses an opportunity for him to get puffed up. He never misses an opportunity for someone to be like, Oh, king, let me worship you a little bit. He never misses those opportunities. So he says, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, so they, they'd eaten the feast, it was good, everyone was having fun, they were drinking wine afterwards, uh, the king said to Esther again, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. <laughs> And then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, cliffhanger, if I have found favor in your sight, if this has been a good meal, the bacon has been crisp, the steak has been medium rare, the beans have been sautéed perfectly, green beans, not baked beans. Sorry, one of my favorite meals is green beans and bacon, like chopped up bacon, green beans, sauteed together. It's fantastic as a side. If I have found favor in the sight of the king and it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. You have liked this, we're going to do it again tomorrow night. If you think this has been good, wait until you see the menu for tomorrow night. If you think that this steak was great next year, next, uh, tomorrow night it's going to be New York Strip. Like tonight, this, is, this was Costco meat. Now next week, we're going straight organic to the farm. She says, I'm going to do something greater than we did tonight. Come on down. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. He went out joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. All right. Haman's a fascinating character if you study him. Now, the backstory. We, we've gone over this before. I feel like I need to mention it again. Uh, Haman is from a certain tribe uh, and people who absolutely, since uh, they've known about them, have hated the Jews. Uh, 
the, the Jewish people, when they came into the land of Canaan, displaced other nations. Uh, Haman's tribe was one of those people, and they've hated each other ever since. We're talking hundreds of years of hate going back and forth, back and forth. Um, Haman's people were the first ones to really try and uh, kill and attack the Jews after they had settled down. So there is a history of animosity between Mordecai's people and Haman's people. Uh, and so there's that simmering under the surface. But then Haman has been promoted. He's been given all of this prestige. He's been elevated to one of the most powerful people in the kingdoms just below the king. He has got uh, all of the, uh, the satraps and provinces and regional governors underneath him. He is in control of a lot of stuff. He is haughty. He is high and exalted. And he has to have everyone like him. Do you know these people, when 99 things go right, they don't focus on the fact that 99 things go right, but there's that one thing, there's that one thing that breaks down and they focus on that. They can't celebrate the 99. Uh, what does Haman have to worry about? He's the most, second most powerful man in a kingdom that is the same size as the continental United States, geographically. He is the most uh, important public servant underneath the king who thinks himself to be a god. And Haman, everything is going right for him. He's got his power, his prestige, his position. And he sees this one guy sitting by the gate who, because of their, uh, their ethnic history, says, I'm not going to stand up or bow to you because I can't. It's against my religion, says Mordecai. And it makes Haman furious. The king and the queen of the most powerful nation that has ever been in existence up until this point that rules the entire world, except for a little bit of Greece. Don't talk about that. They're sensitive. Uh, but they rule most of the known world. Uh, the, the king and queen sit them down at Haman. We're having a meal. You're invited. You're the only one. You think... I'm happy. Haman is merry. He walks by and he sees Mordecai who doesn't rise, doesn't tremble with fear. And I love that scripture says that he was filled with wrath. Not just anger, wrath. I love the word wrath. It is a fun word in scripture. I don't have time. If I did, we would go into it deeper. This is, this is the big idea here. You and I will form an identity. And if our, our identity is in our idolatry, it will lead to our misery. There are two states to be in. You either love God or you don't. You either worship God or you don't. You either follow God or you don't. If you are in this category of don't, you're in the category of idolatry. Idolatry is really simply simple to define. I know when you say you get a lot of mental images, you get mental images of you know giant statues and people bowing down and maybe cutting chickens up and, and sacrificing things over to the side. Uh, idolatry is very simply defined scripturally. It's this. When anything is more important to you than God, when anything is more important than the worship of God. Anything is more important than the instructions that God has given you and expect you to follow. Anything that becomes more important than God is idolatrous. And what we fall into the trap of, especially in this country, is our families can become very idolatrous very quickly when we think that family is more important than our worship of God. Family is a beautiful thing. It's given to us by God, for God, to enjoy. However, if that thing becomes more important than our worship of God, it's idolatrous. And that includes our family relationships. And uh, a lot of people have difficulty with that. And I understand, but in the same token, Scripture is very clear that anything that comes in front of our worship of God is idolatrous. 
All underlying sin is idolatry. And I've said this before. This isn't my quote. I can't even remember who first said this now. This isn't my quote, but it's something that I love. Um, And it's this, when we take good things and we make them God things. That's a great way of thinking about idolatry. It's when we get a good thing and, and we make it into a God thing. We make it more important than God in our life. We make it more important than the things that God uh, wants us to do in our lives. There are so many people who take the good things that God have given them and the, the, the right things that God have given them and they make them into their own God things. And so they become sin things and they become death things. These couple of scriptures have really showed us the two personality types. Esther has now shifted. She's now turned into this woman who is trying to do everything that she can to save her people and to obey God. She's shifted her position. She's come into alignment with the will of God. So you've got her showcased over here. And on the other hand, you've got Haman showcased over here, which shows you what happens when your heart gets corrupted by idolatry. It doesn't matter if you get everything that your heart possibly could ever desire you will still want more. Have you noticed that about Haman? He sits down with the king of the greatest empire in the world, and he gets upset that Mordecai doesn't stand up and bow to him. Even though everything he could possibly want is over here and fulfilled, he still gets mad at this one thing. We have this duality of character that has shown us. The character of Esther coming into alignment with God's will and the character of Haman which is spinning out of control. And the question that I have for you today is, where do you find your identity? Do you find your identity in God, or do you find identity in your own idolatry? It's a difficult question, I know, because the last thing you really want to do is, if you're in a place of idolatry, is to identify it, because that makes you like a bad person, right? However, as a Christian, if you believe in God, if you love God, you need to ask yourself that serious question. Is there anything that God has given you, which might be a good thing, that has instead become a God thing, and so has become a death thing, or a sin thing? Is there anything in your life that is more important than following the will of God for your life? God has a, a perfect will for your life. He has a plan. He has, an, he has a... Uh, a road that he wants you to walk down. Now, oftentimes, oftentimes that road is rocky. It is difficult. It, bad stuff happens on it. And I'm not saying that. I'm not saying if you follow God's will for your life, then it's going to be sunshine, roses, and lollipops. I think we all know that's not true. And if you think that's true, well, God bless you. You've had a wonderful life if nothing's ever gone wrong. Just saying. Don't tell anyone. You might get beaten up for it. But that's the decision everyone has to make. I think we have to make it on a daily basis. Are we following God or are we following ourselves? Are we worshipping God or are we worshipping something else? What is it for you? If you don't have idolatry in your life, fantastic. That's great. And I'm not saying that everyone does. You might be in a perfect place. But I need to ask you, what's your identity this morning? I need to ask you, because Jesus gives us a greater identity. The identity that you have, I'm so-and-so, I'm Joe, I'm a butcher, I'm Joe, I'm a florist, I'm Joe, I do this. That's not your identity. That's what you do. Your job is not your identity. 
Your identity comes from who you belong to. Scripture tells us that those who believe in Christ have been adopted as co-heirs into his kingdom and glory. Those who uh, believe in Jesus have been adopted by the Father and have become sons and daughters of the risen King. It says that you and I have become brothers and sisters with Christ himself. That's your identity. Best way of thinking of it is like this. Do you all have a last name? You're not like Madonna, right? Okay. Is anyone here that just has a single name? The illustration might go off the, off the rails a little bit, but... Uh, I think I know most of you well enough to know that you all have last names. That last name usually comes from a parental figure in your life, either a mother or a father or both, right? Are you with me so far? Your identity comes from who your parents are. Our spiritual identity comes from who our Heavenly Father is. Your spiritual identity is greater than and is given to you by Jesus Christ. So as we end our time together this morning, I know different actually than my normal sermons. Normally I yell and jump around a little bit more. But what I want you to do today is just for you to reflect on this question of identity. Where does your identity come from? Does it come from your Heavenly Father who calls you redeemed, who calls you loved, who calls you cared for, who calls you... Uh, forgiven? Does your identity come from your Heavenly Father or does it come from something else that is dragging and weighing you down? Because here's the thing, those good things that God has given us that we turn into idolatrous things that start weighing us down, they start dragging us down. They're like lead weights around your ankles and you've been thrown into a pool. They drag you down. Where's your identity? If it's not in Christ, talk to me after the service and I will tell you how it is in Christ. But I love you guys. And I want you to know that you are loved by the heaven, our Heavenly Father. You're adopted into His family. Adoption is a choice. You choose to adopt a person. You can choose not to adopt a person. So God has chosen you and adopted you into His household to be co-heirs with Christ co-heirs to the same power and glory. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the day and thank you for the time you've given us to come into your presence and to worship you. I pray, Lord God, that you be with each one of us now as we go from this place, that you remind us on a daily basis that our identity is found in you and that Jesus gives us a greater identity than we could ever hope for or imagine. I pray, Lord, that for those that are struggling with the sins of idolatry, that you be with us and that you help us identify those sins so that we can make choi the choice, the active choice, to worship and follow you. We pray these things in your son's precious name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.